Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, and reading through to the end of the chapter. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met a, a Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his hum humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with, what, with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, uh, John. Let me add my welcome uh, to Pete's. Great to see you here. We have a huge turnover of people in this city and therefore a turnover of people in the church. So if you're new, let me encourage you to find your way uh, into the church, especially through house group or discuss or in the youth groups, of course, uh, as well. Um, it'd be great to see you. This is the third of a series of sermons that we're preaching from the book of Acts on how the early church reached out uh, to uh, their, uh, their generation, the first generation of Christians. And uh, John uh, Adams uh, started uh, the series last Sunday evening, and uh, I preached this morning on Philip's great uh, sermon in Acts chapter 3 and looking at Acts 8 this evening. So let's pray uh, as we begin. Father, we thank you for this uh, word. We thank you that it is your word to us. We thank you that it is true and reliable. We thank you that although it describes what happened 2,000 years ago. So much of what we experience is the same as what they experienced then. 
So encourage us, we pray, as we seek to live our lives filled by your Spirit and to see your kingdom come. Help us to understand this passage and to be as bold and effective for you as Philip was in this incident. Amen. John gave four reasons uh, last week. I've been listening to it, John, on the website, I assure you. Uh, good to see you. And um, he gave four reasons why it is good uh, for us to be uh, doing this right now, uh, why we're doing a course on learning how to share our faith, encouraging us how to share our faith from Acts. First of all, uh, it, he's told us that Jesus told us to do it. Uh, the Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations. Secondly, he reminded us, I reminded you last week, that Alpha, the Alpha course, which starts on October the 6th, uh, when MJ, who we've just commissioned, and I will be speaking, uh, is a great opportunity to invite people or for yourself to come and consider the big issues of life. Ten-week course uh, of um, a short talk, good food, good discussion. It's good fun, actually. No pressure on people, but a great opportunity to think through the claims of the Christian faith. The third reason is that Acts, the book of Acts, has a great number of evangelistic models in it. A whole lot of different situations, different circumstances, different audiences, different people, uh, and we can see lots of uh, ways of sharing our faith and lots of reasons, actually, for having faith in the first place. So Acts is a good place to be. And fourthly, as he explained at greater length, I really ought to get you up here again, John, to go through this, because I just slightly drifted off for a moment as I listened on the website at this moment. But basically, the fourth reason was that we're part of the great story of God's unfolding plan. He made the fatal mistake in his sermon of saying, I'm going to talk about this for a bit longer. And it ju I just tipped over the edge at that moment. And it was, so I, I've missed that. I need to go back to that point a little bit. Sorry, John. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> but we are part of the story of God's expanding kingdom. That was the point, And it's a good point, too. And uh, if we don't do it, then nobody does it. If someone didn't share their faith with you, you wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. Anyway, the sermon's on the website, and it's worth listening to. In between Peter's first sermons and tonight's incident, some very significant events have taken place. Uh, I, everything seemed to start really, really well, and then it all went a bit pear-shaped. I was thinking about that, you know, things starting well and then going wrong, and it back in came to my mind that feeling, because I knew that there'd be lots here who have recently taken exams and some who are starting new courses. Do you know that feeling in the exam when you've got a three-hour paper and you've got four questions? And when you open the paper, you get the paper sitting at your desk, and you immediately spot two that you've swatted up on, and you, and you know you can answer those two. You can write essays on those two things. So you roar into those two things. It's a three-hour exam, so the first essay, which is your masterpiece, takes about an hour. And then you get into the second one, which is not quite a masterpiece, but you're pretty confident. And that takes a second hour, and, and suddenly two hours have gone by. And then you go back to the exam paper, and you have to make a quick decision to, to do two essays. And you, you know, you're thinking, I was a historian, so it would have been you know, a, a doomsday book, Magna Carta, Wars of the Roses, you know, and you dead, oh no, what can I remember? Any of those three, those three things. It takes you 15 minutes to decide which essay to do. And then you've only got 45 minutes left, and the whole thing ends up in a disaster. You can see that 38 years have come and gone, and I still have nightmares about finals. You can see it. So, so, so be encouraged. It happens to everyone. Well, in Acts, in Acts, the first two essays went really well. It started brilliantly. Look, for instance, just with me for a moment, at chapter 2 and verse uh, 41, and you'll see how, uh, how well it went. 
Acts chapter 2 and 31. Those who accepted, who accepted his message, this is Peter preaching and were baptized, about 3,000 were added uh, on that very day, the day of Pentecost. They hadn't even done Alpha, and 3,000 got in. Fantastic. Then look for a minute at, um, at chapter 2 and verse uh, 47. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So every day, people were being converted. And as you can tell from uh, the whole of that section, chapter 2, verse 42 and following, there was great fellowship and unity in the church, uh, and it was a, a wonderful, wonderful sort of revival, really. Well, a revival. Can you have a revival without a revival? Because it was kind of the first time. But it was, um, it was great life and great excitement, and everything was going really well. And then in chapter 3, things begin to get a bit tougher. That's what we looked at this morning. There was a wonderful healing of the crippled man at the beautiful gate of the temple, but there was a much less enthusiastic welcome of Peter's preaching. In fact, we're told that people were disturbed by his preaching. And then uh, they were threatened. Peter and John were threatened with prison, and uh, it really began to get pretty tough. In chapter 5, the church implodes itself, with the Ananias and Sapphira incident, and then there's the official imprisonment, and even the threat of death penalty to the apostles, which only the famous intervention of Gamaliel uh, prevents. So it's tremendous growth, and then things get pretty difficult. In chapter 6, we hear that in the face of this difficulty, they appoint the deacons, uh, one of whom is called Philip, and another, of course, is called Stephen, and Stephen is horrendously martyred at the end of chapter 7, stoned to death. Chapter 8, we only just read the bit about the Ethiopian eunuch, but if you look at the first uh, verses of chapter 8, we are uh, confronted with some very sobering words. On that day, he write, uh, Luke writes, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So there was great persecution. I wonder what that verse reminded of you. They were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Did it remind you of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which John pointed us to last week, where Jesus promises that uh, the gospel will be taken to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Are we soon going to hear, as we open chapter 8, are we soon going to hear of the gospel going to Samaria? are we soon going to hear of the gospel going even to the ends of the earth? Almost unimaginable that that could be so when those first disciples gathered in the upper room after the crucifixion of Jesus just a few weeks earlier. So we read then of Philip's mission in Samaria. It is to Samaria that he is scattered. Samaritans were a despised mixed-race community based in the area north and west of Jerusalem. And Philip's mission to Samaria, the first time that the gospel is taken to a non-Jewish grouping, uh, was a spectacular success, necessitating a visit from Peter and John, you could read about that in, earlier in chapter 8, to ensure that Philip was preaching the whole gospel. Can it be this kind of easy? Let's go and check that they're getting the whole message. And they sought out the very odd chap called Simon the Sorcerer while they're there. And then we get to this amazing story with the Ethiopian. Philip is directed towards Gaza. Gaza, we all know where Gaza is now, of course, from the news, which we read about uh, all the time. Uh, To get from Samaria to Gaza required going on a desert road. It was an unpromising route to take. 
and there he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a very topsy-turvy, a very success uh, one minute and failure the next time of ex type of experience that I expect most of us in the Christian life can relate to. One minute there is exhilarating progress as people come to Christ, uh, and that can be followed by uh, inexplicable hostile opposition. You may experience that in your workplace. Or we make a plan that seems eminently sensible and is proceeding smoothly, but it's suddenly kind of kiboshed for no apparent reason, and God redirects his people in a new direction. I could give you many examples from uh, my time in ministry here at St. Andrews, some quite recent, in fact. So it's interesting to see where Philip ends up, uh, not just now where he ends up on the, on the desert road, but where this all leads to, because trusting in where God is taking us as individuals in a church is really important. Just turn on uh, to Acts 21 and verses 7 and 8. Before preparing this, I had slightly forgotten about how wonderful the ending of the story is. So, it, like um, when you cheat in a novel, we're just going to read the last paragraph first. Acts 21, verses 7, uh, 7 and 8. We continued our voyage, Paul and Luke, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, that is one of the seven deacons, ordained in chapter 6 of Acts. He had by this time four unmarried daughters who prophesied, and all the young men of the town came to visit. It doesn't say that, but I'm sure they did. Anyway, so that's where he ended up. He ended up in uh, Caesarea. He built a church, had a family, and established a Christian community in that place with spirit-filled daughters uh, working for the gospel. Amazing, really. Wonderful that it ended in that way. So the encounter on the road led to the first African convert and the establishment of a spirit-filled evangelistic church in Caesarea. Marvelous. May I humbly suggest that we live our lives in sure confidence that God knows what he is doing, even if at times it baffles us and how baffled Philip must have been. Well, four things we can learn, perhaps, which we can put into our practice in our own lives from this story of Philip and the Ethiopian. First of all, we are to be sensitive to the Spirit. We're to be sensitive to the Spirit. This morning when I preached on Acts chapter 3, we saw Peter anointed by the Spirit, still with a kind of Pentecostal anointing upon him, proclaiming the gospel publicly, public proclamation of the gospel. And that's what we try to do Sunday by Sunday or at Alpha in discuss in the children and youth groups and so on. And it's an entirely legitimate and proven method of evangelism. And people get converted by it. And some of you here may have become Christians because someone took you to a public meeting where the gospel was explained. Here, in contrast to that, the Spirit, but it is the Spirit, an angel of the Lord. We don't know quite how it happened, but certainly Philip was directed by God uh, to go to the desert road to Gaza. And he's led to one man and in many ways to a very unlikely man. The Candace of Ethiopia was, that's not her name, although you might want to call your daughter that because it's quite nice in due course, but Candace is the kind of like Pharaoh of Ethiopia. It's the title of the Queen of Ethiopia. And he is her uh, Chancellor of the, of the Exchequer, her leading civil servant, the Ethiopian eunuch. She, I imagine, 
at least I like to think this is true because I'm a chap, she was very beautiful. I assume she was very beautiful. All Ethiopian queens must be beautiful by definition, mustn't they? And uh, I assume, therefore, that the choice of a eunuch as her right-hand man was extraordinarily sensible. I've, put, I've read a lot between the lines in this story, as you can tell, <laughs> as I've been thinking about it. And um, I assume that he was a good choice because he would not be a sexual predator upon her, and no doubt there were numerous such in her court. But more importantly than that, more importantly and very significantly in this story, he had to some extent embraced the religion of Judaism. That's why he had gone uh, to Jerusalem. He was what is usually referred to as a God-fearer. He possibly he had even been circumcised. No one seems to be quite sure whether that would have happened. I rather hope that he hadn't been because, you know, how much mutilation can a poor, poor bloke take, you know? But, uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> um, whatever, whatever his situation, he, um, he had become a convert to Judaism. He was a believer in Judaism. William, William Barclay says this, that the world then was full of people weary of the many gods and loose morals of the nations. The world was full of people weary of the many gods and loose morals of the nations. Has a contemporary ring, doesn't it? Perhaps you saw an article in the Times this week by David Aronovich, who's an, athe an atheist, and he was attacking those who attacked religion. It was particularly in the light of the whole um, Terry Jones incident going on in the US. Incidentally, it's really important that we pray um, for one of our church members, Gordon Shaw Rogers. Gordon is in New York at the moment and has had the opportunity with others to be uh, working with uh, Pastor Terry Jones to try and calm the situation. And in particular, we need to pray that Gordon is able and others are able to persuade him to apologize for this extraordinarily inept suggestion uh, to burn Korans publicly. So do pray for Gordon. Uh, it's a privilege for us as a church that we should have somebody who's in that situation. But David Aronovich uh, attacks those who attack religion. Though he himself is not a believer in God, it was obvious to him, as he looked on balance at the world, that religion tended to make people better, and therefore the world a safer place. It's an interesting point for discussion, of course, because some people take a very different view. But those who are weary of our amoral society are often most open to the gospel. So to this thoughtful, God-fearing, powerful, foreign, emasculated African, the Spirit leads Philip. To whom is he leading you and me? Perhaps not the people we expect. Perhaps it will be an incident across your path in the next uh, few days, the next few weeks, perhaps as you travel, perhaps as you change job, perhaps as you start a new college course, perhaps as you change school. It may be somebody completely out of the blue, as it must have been for Philip. But what an impact this conversation had, not just on Africa, but through Africa, the whole world. Be sensitive to the Spirit. Secondly, seize the moment. Now, you might think that this was a bit of a golden opportunity. I mean, how many times, those of you who commute, have you uh, sat on the train and found someone reading the Old Testament and Isaiah 53 in particular? Now, we are all encouraged to take opportunities, but this is what you could describe as a golden opportunity, really. Not only is he reading the Old Testament, but he's reading Isaiah 53, which is a fantastic prophecy of the sufferings of the Messiah, 
And, of course, he then asks Philip what it might mean. I mean, this could happen to you, by the way. Be ready. It could happen. You know, the Holy Spirit still exists. He's still working with people like Philip didn't know much. So you could, you're ready. Don't be ready. Anything might happen. Um, and anyway, just think. Just think. It's an amazing... Just turn to Isaiah, because just... If, he, if Philip had been there three minutes later, he would have got to Isaiah 56. And look what would have happened if he had got to Isaiah 56. If you can find Isaiah 56, somewhere in the middle of your Bible. Just that the Spirit's timing is very good. And if you miss the moment, you might miss it forever. Isaiah 56. This is where the eunuch could have got to. Uh, look at verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 56. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Note the use of the word cut. And anyway, he could have been reading that. Three minutes later, he would have been there reading that. And imagine the conversation then if Philip had arrived at that point. It would all have been about the unfairness of emasculation. It would have been about the place of eunuchs in society. You know, it would have been one of the great red herrings of all time. And they would have got to Gaza and probably not even mentioned Jesus at all. But Philip is not seduced by red herrings. And they get straight to the point in Isaiah 53. It's all about Jesus. So consider him. Look at verse 35. That's how he... That's how he directs the conversation. The moment comes, and Philip doesn't miss it. Your moment may come at any moment, and you don't know who it'll be. So seize the moment. Thirdly, explaining the Scripture. The Old Testament is as much about Jesus as the New. Do not make the mistake of thinking it either irrelevant or, power, or powerless. Now, of course, Isaiah 53, this passage... Uh, is particularly powerful because it's prophecy of the sufferings of the Messiah and because that is a key passage, especially for the Jewish reader or for the God-fearer. It's a key, a great passage to show to any Jewish friend you might have who's unsure about Christianity. For them, the death of the Messiah is an offense. God cannot die. But here, uh, this graphic account of the Isaiah, of the suffering of the servant Messiah, had had. had absolutely arrested this God-fearing Ethiopian. It would be lovely, I think, to have a record of Philip's conversation. I wonder how he actually explained the Scriptures and led it to Jesus. It reminded me a little of a story that I've often told of another Philip, a, 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 a story when I was there. It was a young man called Philip Bateman, who was a cyclist in the British team at the Olympic Games in 1988 in Seoul, Korea where I was a chaplain. And after a disappointing performance in his sport of cycling, God used Philip uh, to lead to Christ the extraordinarily ugly and monstrous super heavyweight boxer from Puerto Rico. This is an absolutely true story. Now, Phil had only been a Christian about two years, uh, not much longer than this Philip, probably. He had never led anyone to Christ before. And one evening at a meeting I was hosting, this huge, monstrous chap uh, comes into the room. And I asked him, you know, as one does as a vicar, how very nice to see you, although I was kind of ducking and weaving a bit already, and uh, <laughs> asked him what had brought him to the chapel in the Olympic Village. And he said that he was fighting the next day 
and he had seen the man that he was going to fight against, and he was even bigger and uglier than him. <laughs> and so he needed a bit of prayer, he thought. Well, didn't go, the conversation, a few things happened in between, but in due course, when we were having a cup of coffee at the end of the short meeting we had, Phil seized his moment, and he walked over to this super heavyweight boxer, and he said, looking at him straight in the eye, Phil's a cyclist, five foot eight, little chap from Bradford. Uh, he looked him straight in the air, and he said, Harold, that was the chap's name, Harold, you don't know Jesus, do you? Well, I thought it was a very bold thing to say to a super heavyweight boxer, I have to say. But it melted this man's heart, and Phil led him to faith in Jesus, gently pointing him to the Scriptures that explained the death and resurrection of Jesus. In many ways, Phil didn't really know uh, uh, what to say, but he opened the Scriptures and let the Scriptures speak to Harold. And the Spirit gave life to the words, and this uh, great big boxer uh, came there and then to faith in Christ, prayed a prayer, and committed his life to Jesus. Uh, it was a bit like the story in Acts chapter 3 of the, lame, uh, of, the, of the crippled man who was healed because this, a, a light came on in this man and he leapt to his feet and he ran around the room hugging everybody and shouting and he was full of joy. It was quite painful being hugged by him, but it was, it was a wonderful experience. Now, I think that a similar kind of conversation must have happened here on the road to Gaza between Philip and the Ethiopian Philip probably very uncertainly, probably very unsure in some ways how to explain his new faith, but it touched the Ethiopian's heart, and the Scriptures brought faith to this man. So explain the Scriptures, explain the Scriptures, use them. Lastly, seal the deal, seal the deal. I've got four S's, I hope you spotted that. It's a uh, it's Michael Green. It's Michael Green. I don't know if Michael's here tonight. Michael Green says, as a keen fisherman, he might. He says, it's no good influencing fish. You've got to catch them. What fisherman, he says, ever looked his wife in the face when she asked, caught anything, and got away with saying, no, but influenced a few? <laughs> Phil, Philip on the road to Gaza, seals the deal by baptizing his friend as soon as water is available. The man is well and truly converted, and he's initiated into the church and becomes part of the new community. And off he goes, we're, say, we're told he goes off rejoicing uh, to proclaim the gospel to the Ethiopian court, perhaps even to Candace herself, and thus to Africa. What a wonderful story. The great pioneer of sports ministry around the world in the last 40 years was a little Jewish man called Eddie Waxer. He was playing tennis at college in the late 1960s, and one day he asked an attractive young lady student for a game of tennis. After the match, as they left the court, she said, have you got five minutes? He fancied her rotten, so he reckoned that he did. She said, I need to tell you about Jesus because I'm about to go back to my Bible study group and we've all been challenged to share our faith with someone this week before our next meeting and then report back on it. And I'm off to the meeting now and I haven't done it. Please let me have five minutes of your time. Eddie Jew, he had never heard about Jesus before. He had never heard 
about God becoming a man in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died on the cross for him and rose again, and that he was there to forgive him his sins and usher him into heaven. He'd never heard it before. And he came to faith through the witness of that tennis player. The lives of thousands, if not millions of people, have been changed as a result of that girl's hesitant witness on the edge of a tennis court. Thousands, millions of people's lives have been changed by the faithful witness of Philip on that road to Gaza. How might he use you and me if we too are found faithful? Let's pray. Lord, we feel as inadequate, I'm sure, and as uh, hesitant as Philip must have done as he walked down that road and the chariot roared towards him and then pulled up, perhaps his heart beat, perhaps he was afraid, what would happen? And yet your spirit was with him, your anointing was upon him, and wonderful things happened as a result of his obedience to your word. Make us, I pray, obedient. And I pray that for each one of us here, in church this evening, that over these next few weeks, you would give each one of us some kind of road to Gaza experience, some kind of uh, relationship, some kind of um, connection with somebody. Maybe it'll be expected, somebody we've been praying for years, maybe completely unexpected. But I pray, Father, that you would make us ready for that moment. And even in our fear and hesitancy, use us to extend your kingdom. Amen.